Now, it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. William Derimple. Mr. Derimple is the author of several prize-winning travel books and history, histories. He wrote the highly acclaimed bestseller in Xanadu when he was 22 years old. In 1989, Mr. Derimple moved to Delhi, where he lived for six years researching his second book, City of Gins, which, which won the Sunday Times Young British Writer of the Year Award. Mr. Derimple is also author of The Age of Kali, White Mughals and the last Mughal. He lives on a farm outside Delhi with his wife and three children. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. William Derimple. Thank you. Um, about 18 months ago, um, when I started uh, working on this book uh, about how religion was changing in, in modern India. Uh, I set off with some um, Baal friends from Bengal. These are the wandering minstrels of Bengal. And we went off in search uh, of a, a man who seemed to be uh, perfect material for a book of this sort. Uh, I'd read about him in some academic paper. This guy was called Tapan Goswami. And uh, he was remarkable, according to this, uh, this academic paper, for having the largest collection of skulls in Bengal. Uh, and he apparently painted them red to stop them going moldy in the monsoon. And he used to feed them old monk rum uh, and bagpiper whiskey. Uh, and, uh, and used to give them lentils and stuff. And he would use these skulls to summon spirits. Now, being a latent orientalist, this sounded like very promising material. Uh, so I set off with these, uh, this bunch of uh, Bengali minstrels who were, I was traveling with, uh, looking for this guy. One of them had uh, met him once upon a time and thought he remembered that he lived outside in some Kali temple on a cremation ground on the outskirts of Bolpur. So we circled the cremation grounds of Bolpur looking for this guy and eventually found him. And it was straight Indiana Jones, Orientalist, central casting. It was perfect. It was, yeah, so sort of, you know, uh, Pukur, lake at the back, uh, sort of a little bit of mist coming off the top. Goat tethered to a trident. Tapangaswami sharpening sword <laughs> in a suspiciously sinister manner, smoking funeral pyre behind. And... Uh, I ask him, you know, is it, is it true that you collect skulls and feed them bagpiper whiskey and old monk rum? And he said, yes, yes, I've got the largest collection of skulls in Bengal, the absolutely fantastic collection. And we chatted away about these blessed skulls for a bit, and eventually he sort of clammed up. And I said, um, you know, you can tell me, I, I, I won't tell anyone. <laughs> and he says, it's not you I'm worried about. It's, it, it's my two boys, they're ophthalmologists in New Jersey. And, uh, and they keep saying, Dad, you must stop going on about this black magic stuff. It's, it's really bad for business. And, you know, it's tough being an Orientalist these days because you, you, you go searching for these guys and you find, in fact, that they are, you know, they've got uh, cousins at the hammer or, or something. So it's <laughs> uh, and this book is really about what it, what's, it, there's been so much that's been written about the new India. We now all know that uh, India's economy is growing. Uh, at this extraordinary rate, 8.59%, that it's going to overtake the US, according to the CIA, by 2050. But so much of the work that's been done on this astonishing transformation has been economic. There's been some wonderful books. I particularly like Ed Luce's book, In Spite of the Gods, as a, a looking at how India is changing. 
Um, but the kind of wider picture, what's happening to all these lineages, all these strange vocations, all the uh, different um, uh, ways of, of being Indian scattered around India. This seemed to me a very interesting way in to look at how Indian religion is changing. What's happened to those fuckers on their nail beds that we used to read about in uh, in 19th century uh, picture books? What's happened to the sadhus with their um, matted hair rushing off to the Ganges? I mean, again, one similar story. I was trekking with my wife up to the source of the Ganges uh, two years ago, up above Kedanat in the Himalayas. And this absolutely, again, sort of picture-perfect Nagasadu strode up, sort of um, stuck, you know, naked as the day is born, a bit of ash on him swinging, right? Um, trident uh, blanket. And he spoke perfect English, which was a surprise, because you kind of assume sadhus don't. Anyway, it turned out he had an MBA and that he, he used to work with Kelvinator selling white goods in Bombay, fridges and... <laughs> And this has gone on right from the beginning to the end of this project. I, I'm one of the th Sadly, we didn't get the cash together to bring all these guys with us. But for the last nine months, I've been circling the world with a lot of the people in the book, with some Baals, with some Fakirs from, uh, from Sindh, with uh, Tayam Dancer from uh, Kerala, uh, and his sidekick, who's a kind of taxi driver turned drummer. And we've had a terrific time. We've been getting, gone over the shop. We were in the Sydney Opera House we were last week in, in the, in the uh, Asia Society in New York. And I remember we started the thing at the Barbican. And uh, I asked, just before we went on stage, one of the two old Baals, these fabulously gnarled old minstrels from uh, Bengal, um, uh, why they had passports. Because, again, it's unusual. This guy lived in a, the, the guy I was asking, Kanai, is a, lives in a little hut in a cremation ground at Tarapid, uh, which is about sort of an hour north of Calcutta. <laughs> And again, not the guy you'd naturally um, have assumed would, would have a passport. And I said, you know, how long have you had it? He said, oh, I've had it years, he said. And it turned out, he said, I said some English singer got us over 20 years ago for, a, for, a, for, for an event. Um, they called Mick something. And it turned out they'd been at the, <laughs> they, Mick Jagger had called them to his housewarming in Cheney Walk for a beggar's banquet release. Uh, <laughs> So this, this world is shot through with, with contradictions that, uh, as well as the, the now sort of um, very familiar Tom Friedman India of sort of uh, uh, back uh, office processing units and the Bangalore software writers. Uh, between that and the other stereotype of the perfect arcane Narayan village with buffaloes sort of wallowing in paddy fields and stuff, there is a whole world in transition, caught between, suspended between maternity and tradition, uh, where these paradoxes, these strange uh, intermixtures of modernity and tradition, of, of the new and the old, uh, are being played out. And I decided to examine this uh, I soon gave up the idea of trying to do anything encyclopedic, but to take nine individuals, each of whom represented a different religious vocation, um, and to see how they were faring, to get them to tell their stories. As a writer, I'd written a lot of travel books in my 20s uh, before turning to history and had very much put myself in the foreground. But this book, I was determined to let these guys um, tell their own story. Uh, the book is 80% uh, recorded speech. Um, and and I, the, I, the narrator, am only incidentally uh, present. Uh, although, obviously, my selection of the individuals and, and, and the way I present them is a, it shows my interests and prejudices and, 
uh, and uh, uh, my uh, sort of creative formation of the book. The first um, uh, group I'll, I'll talk about this evening, I, I plan to do four little snapshots for you this evening. And uh, since we've been talking about the bowels, I thought we'd probably start with them. The bowels are uh, fabulous. Uh, if I was to convert by force to any of these religions, I think I might well become a bowel. Um, they are the, the in, it's nothing to do with waterworks or deli belly, bowels or, or anything uh, unpleasant. Uh, bowel simply means um, madman in Bengali. Um, and the bowels have a philosophy which is formed uh, out of the palimpsest of different cultures which have passed through and influenced Bengal over the centuries. Uh, on a kind of Vaishnav Hindu base, uh, there are successive layers of Sufi Islam, Tantra, uh, and Buddhism. And uh, the Baals uh, believe that there is no external deity, that it is pointless going to a temple or to a mosque or to a synagogue or a church. It is uh, useless to worship a stone idol because the only god that there is uh, is the monomanush, the man of the heart, uh, to discover yourself. It's very Californian, and yet it's 600 years old. Um, and um, they preach this religion, this doctrine, this philosophy, um, by traveling from village to village. And everyone gives up the jobs, and they see the bowels coming, because they're going to have some fun. Everyone sits down, they cook some fish. Uh, and they sit around and they get stoned and they then sing their songs and they have these deceptively simple preaching songs um, which are gorgeous and they, and they sing beautifully uh, never plunge into the river of lust for you will not reach the shore it is a river without banks where typhoons rage and the current is strong only those who are masters of the five rasas, the juices of love know the play of the tides. Their boats do not sink. Paddled by oars of love, they row strongly upstream. My soul cries out, caught in the snare of the beauty of the formless one. As I cry by myself night and day, beauty amassed before my eyes surpasses moons and suns. If I look at the clouds in the sky, I see his beauty afloat, and I see him walk on the stars, blazing within my heart. So the two bowels that I wrote about in this book were a wonderful pair called Kanai and Debu, who are firm friends and are, are virtually inseparable. But they come from the very opposite ends of Bengali village society. Kanai is the son of a landless village Dalit laborer, former untouchables. Uh, he was born with sight, but lost the ability to see when he caught smallpox aged six months and spent the rest of his life blind. But his one great gift was an extraordinary voice, and he has this wonderful reedy falsetto that is wonderfully gorgeous, uh, sensuous falsetto voice. And age six, he was singing in the village Puko, the fish pond, when a bowel guru passed by and told his father, he's a blind boy, he's going to find it hard to get work in the village, but uh, 
we'll take him in if we uh, if ever he needs a uh, uh, a job, send him off to the Baals and we'll look after him, teach him the songs he can sing. In fact, Kanai stayed in the village and uh, until his brother and his father died in an agricultural accident age 14 when he took over the job of having to beg uh, effectively for his uh, two sisters. And because the family was well known in the village and well loved, they were always able to get by on a day-to-day -day basis. But he could never raise the extra money that was needed to marry off the two girls. And um, Kanai and his, um, must have communicated, I think, to his sisters his depression uh, about this inability to get any kind of dowry together. Uh, because one day he came home and he found that his sister had strung herself up from the main uh, ceiling beam in the house. Uh, and destroyed and appalled by this, uh, Kanai went off uh, to take up the religious life, became a Baal. And in the middle of the monsoon, he went off to Rampo Hat, a nearby town. And he's blind, so he gets out. It's 8 o'clock at night. There's no one around. It's raining. And he's pointed off in the right direction by the bus conductor. And he heads on... Uh, and the water gets deeper, and it goes around his ankles, then around his calves, then around his knees. And as he tells it, it's rather a sort of epic story uh, of persistence and, and bravery in the face of adversity. But he heads on, and the water goes up to his thighs, and finally the, the road begins to rise, and at the top of the hill is the ashram of the guru. And the guru expresses no surprise that he's come. He said, ah, the boy in the pukor, I knew you'd come eventually. He teaches him the Baal songs, and he goes off and starts singing in the trains of Bengal. And there he meets Debu. Now, Debu is from the opposite end of the Bengali village. Debu is the son of the British Brahmin. His brother is the police chief. Um, they're very orthodox. Uh, they don't like the uh, Muslims in the village. Uh, Debu's best friend is Anwar, whose father rolls biddies, little cigarettes. And uh, Debu's father is perfectly happy to smoke these biddies, but first he has to disinfect them of their sort of Islamicness by touching them against cow dung. And Debu thinks this is all sort of uh, very dodgy and uh, gets in touch, uh, gets into Baal music. And the Baals are very sort of counter-Orthodox. They are uh, subversive. Uh, and the great Baal Mela, uh, Kenduli, uh, is one of the great sort of uh, anarchies of India. It's, uh, uh, it makes sort of Woodstock look like a kind of Rotarian dinner. Uh, 25,000 screaming tantric musicians strumming their stuff simultaneously, high as a, high as a kite, out of their heads. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. I highly recommend it every, every mid-January. And anyway, ba um, old Debu thought he'd come, he'd, he'd sort of finally found a life that he, he loved, and uh, he went off and um, uh, to this bell and had a fantastic time. Came back home uh, to find furious parents. He hadn't got their permission to go away, he disappeared for two days, they were worried sick, and Debu's father beats the hell out of him, draws blood, black eyes, and the, and the police chief brother does the same. Debu crawls off to the railway station, determined not to submit to the family authority, jumps on the first train, gets off just outside Calcutta and Budwan Junction. And he's sitting there, he's got any money in his pocket, doesn't know what he's going to do. He's got black eyes, clothes are torn, there's blood on his kurta. And about one in the morning, the Tufan Express pulls in from Vrindavan, 
the holy town associated with Lord Krishna. And three old bowels get out, and they see this boy sitting miserably on the bench. And so they ask him what happened, and he tells the story. And one of the old men hangs, hands him his ektara, the one-stringed instrument that the bowels play, and says, take this, go to Vrindavan, Lord Krishna will look after you. So without anything better to do, Debu does that. He gets on the train, uh, and he can't even speak Hindi. He just speaks Bengali, so he can't even get any food. He doesn't have any money. Anyway, he arrives in Vrindavan, goes to an ashram, is fed, then goes down to the ghats and throws his Brahmin thread onto the river Yamuna, giving away his caste, symbolically. Puts on a bowel patch, patchwork coat and begins to learn the bowel songs. And on the journey back to Bengal, he meets Kanai, and the two never separate. The two become great friends and sing and dance together for the following 40 years. And the first of the four readings I'm going to read tonight uh, is uh, about the one time that the two separated. There was only one time when I left Kanai, said Debu. This was when I became obsessed with trying to live without food, like the saints and the yogis of the old stories. These saints controlled all their desires and so never ate. They lived on air alone. I wanted to find out if this was still possible. So I went off on my own and I found a wood apple tree in a forest near a pond. We believe these trees are very auspicious. I sat there in a loincloth and I meditated for two years, eating less and less until I stopped eating altogether, taking a vow that no food would pass my lips until I reached my goal and achieved enlightenment. I didn't know how I lived. I had matted dreadlocks down to my knees and I sat there not eating, not smoking, drinking nothing but water. I focused inwards, conserving my energies, and I sat there like that through two monsoons and two cold winters. I used to visit him, said Kanai. The villagers knew where he was and would lead me to him through the forest. They called him Beltala Babaji, the sadhu who sits under the wood apple tree. He was very thin and very weak. He hardly moved or talked, only very short sentences. I was anxious that he wouldn't survive, and it pained me that he wouldn't eat. I brought him food, but he refused to eat it. He was very determined. I don't know what I attained by this penance, said Debu, but I do know that my mind was at peace as never before. My hair was matted, but the knots of my heart were untied. After a certain point, I stopped feeling hunger. I was at the end of desire, beyond the senses. It was then that I started hallucinating. I was no longer living inside my body. I was somewhere outside of myself, in a state of ecstasy and rapture. I've never felt anything like it before or since. And then, one cold, starry night, around the time of Makasakranti, I felt suddenly lost, as if my mind had finally detached itself from my body, like a bird flying high. It was Kanai who brought me back. What do you mean? 
I was unaware of it, but there had been a terrible storm. Kanai had a premonition that I was in trouble, and he came over from Tarapit to see if I was all right. He found me. He arrived early in the morning with a group of villagers and found me up to my neck in a pool of mud, fast asleep. They all thought I was dead, and I suppose I almost was. Kanai brought me back to his house in Tarapit and nursed me back to health. The blind man saved the man who could see, said Kanai, chuckling to himself. Sometimes the mad and sightless can understand things better and more clearly than the sane and the sighted. The blind, said Debu, are never deceived by appearances. Maybe, said Kanai, it is only those of us who have no eyes who can see through the lure of Maya and glimpse reality for what it is. Thank you. Now, a very different uh, tradition from uh, Kerala. One of the interesting things about taking this book around India is how regional religion in India still is. I thought this book would be um, old hat to the people that lived in the country, but in reality, they all knew their own regional uh, forms of uh, religiosity, but were very uh, uh, surprisingly ignorant about stuff going on elsewhere in the country. So people in Bengal would know all about the Baals, but they wouldn't know about the Tayam dancers in Kerala. The Tayam dancers of Kerala would be known to the people of Kerala, but they wouldn't know about the Bardic tradition of Rajasthan and so on. And the, the Tayam dance, I think, is probably the most spect spectacular of all the different forms that I saw on my travels. It is a form of incarnational dance, uh, whereby uh, Dalit dancers take on the deity uh, and for a very brief period of two months a year become gods before returning to their old life again. Uh, and uh, I'll read you from the second story in the book, which is called The Dancer of Kanur. In the midnight shadows of a forest clearing, bounded on one side by a small stream, and a moonlit paddy field, and on the other side by the darkness of a rubber plantation and a green canopy of coconut palms, lit only by a bonfire and a carpet of flickering camphor flames. A large crowd has gathered, silhouetted against the light. Most have walked many miles through the darkness to get here, and they are waiting and watching for the moment when, once a year, the gods come down to earth and dance. For 20 minutes now, a troop of six sweat-glistening, half-naked, dark-skinned Dalit drummers have been raising their tempo. The insistent beats they are rapping out on their goat-hide drums with their small, hard, tamarind-wood drumsticks are getting gradually yet distinctly faster and louder and more frenzied. The song telling the myth of the god about to be incarnated has been sung, and in front of the shrine at the centre of the clearing, the first of the dancers has just been possessed seized by the gods, as they put it. Now he's frenetically pirouetting against the clear around the clearing, strutting and jabbing, unsheathed sword in one hand, bow and quiver of arrows in the other. Instinctively, the crowd draws back towards the shadows. Behind the shrine, on the edge of the clearing, there is a palm-thatched hut, and this has been commandeered by the Tame troop as their green room. Inside, the next dancer to go on, a fanged female figure representing the goddess Bhagavati, with a red-painted face supported by a huge red-gilt mirrored headdress, 
is getting ready to summon the deity. The young male dancer who's about to take in the goddess is putting the final touches to his breastplate and adjusting the headdress so that the facets flash in the light of the flames. Prostrate on a palm mat amid the discarded clothes, the unused costumes and the half-made headdresses, immobile at the rear of the hut, lies the dark and muscular figure of the man I've come to see. Harry Das is one of the most celebrated and articulate Teum dancers in the area, and he's lying naked but for a white lungi. Lying on his back as a young boy applies makeup to his face and body. His torso and upper arms are covered with yellow paint and his cheeks are smeared with orange, orange turmeric which gives off a strongly pungent smell. Two black paisleys are painted around his eyes and a pair of mango-shaped patches on his cheeks are daubed with bright white rice paste. On these, using a slim strip of coconut leaf, the makeup boy is skillfully drawing loops and walls and scorpion-tailed trumpet spirals, then finishing off the effect with a thin red stripe across his cheekbones. I sit down on the, door, on the floor beside him, and we chat as the makeup boy begins the slow transformation of Harry Das into the god Vishnu. I ask whether he's nervous. How does the possession come about? What does it feel like to be taken over by a god? It's difficult to describe, says Harry Das. Before it happens, I always get very tense, even though I've been doing this for 26 years now. It's not that I'm nervous of the god coming. It's more fear that he might refuse to come. It is the intensity of your devotion that determines the intensity of the possession. If you lose your feelings of devotion, if it becomes even once routine, the gods may stop coming. He pauses as the makeup boy continues applying face paint from the pigment he's mixing on a strip of banana leaf in his left hand. Harry Das opens his mouth and the makeup boy carefully applies red, red rouge to his lips. It, it's like a blinding light, he says eventually. When the drums are playing and your makeup is finished, they hand you a mirror and you look at your face transformed into that of a god. Then it comes. It is as if there is a sudden explosion of light. A vista of complete brilliance opens up. It blinds the senses. Are you aware of what's happening, I say? No, he replies. That light stays with you all the way through the performance. You become the deity. You lose all fear. Even your voice changes. The, vo the god comes alive and takes over. You are just the vehicle, the medium. In the trance, it is the god who speaks. All the acts are the acts of the god. Thinking, feeling, speaking. The dancer is an ordinary man, but this being is divine. Only when the headdress is removed does it end. What's it like when you come to from a trance? It's like the incision of a surgeon, he says, making a cutting gesture with one hand. Suddenly, it's all over. It's gone. You don't have any access to what happened during the possession or the performance. You can't remember anything that happened in the trance. There is only a sensation of relief, as if you've offloaded something. The second dancer is now gazing intently in a small hand mirror at the entrance of the hut, identifying himself with the goddess. As I watch, the dancer stamps his feet, ringing the bells and the cowrie shells on his anklets. Then he jerks his body suddenly to one side, as if hit by a current of electricity, before sinking 
into a strange crouching position. His body is quivering, his hands shaking, and his eyes are flicking from side to side. The figure who had been still, silently staring only seconds earlier, is now transformed, twisting his head in an eerie series of movements that is part tropical fish, part stinging insect, part reptile, part bird of paradise. Then he's gone, bounding out into the clearing under the stars, followed by the two attendants holding burning splints. Harry Das is now getting to his feet, preparing to put on his own costume, and I ask, so it's like a full-time job becoming a god, is it? No, he says, sadly. For nine months a year, I work as a manual labourer. I build wells during the week, then at the weekend, I work at Telly Cherry Central Jail as a warder. You're a prison warder. I need to make a living, he answers. I'm poor enough to be ready to do virtually anything if it pays me a daily wage. It's not for pleasure, it's very dangerous work. In what sense? Well, the inmates rule the jail. Many have got political backing. No one dares mess with them. The jail authorities are totally under their control. He shrugs. Every day, the local newspaper has some new horror story. They're always cutting the noses and hands of their political rivals on the parade ground or in the cells at night. In fact, there are two jails around here. One for the RSS, the far right, in Telecherry, and the other in Kanur for the CPI, the Communist Party, CPM. The two parties are at war. In Kanur, it's said it, is the mouth that's, it isn't the mouth that speaks, it's the sword that does. If you abuse someone's father, he may forgive you. But if you abuse his party, he will instantly cut you to pieces. Both jails contain those the police catch for such crimes, and they're notorious for housing the worst goons. If a, communist par if a communist ever ends up in Telecherry or an RSS Karzevac is put in Kanur, you can guarantee he won't last 24 hours. Can't this be stopped, I asked. Well, occasionally someone tries, says Harry Das. Only the other day, a new superintendent came here from Bihar and severely punished one of the big gang leaders. Before he got home that night, the superintendent's home had been burnt to the ground. Harry Das laughs. All the prisoners have mobile phones and can order any sort of act from inside prison. The head warden once bought a jammer to try and stop them, but within the week, someone had got, got to it, poured seawater into it, and it jammed itself. That was that. He smiles. I try to keep my head down. I never beat a prisoner, and I avoid, just try and avoid getting beaten up myself. I know that if I did the job properly, I would soon be beheaded. And all tame dancers lead double lives like this, I ask. Of course, said Harry Das. Chaumundi over there makes wedding decorations, and Narasimha is a waiter at a hotel. That boy playing Bhagavati is a bus conductor and Gulligan the destroyer, he's a toddy tapper. So you're only part-time gods. Only during the Tehem season, he says, from December to February. We give up our jobs and become Tehem artists. For those months, we become gods. Everything changes. We don't eat meat or fish. We're forbidden to sleep with our wives. We bring blessings to the village and the villagers and exercise the evil spirits. We are the vehicle through which people can thank the gods for fulfilling their prayers and granting their wishes. Though we are all Dalits, even the most bigoted and castest Nambudri Brahmins worship us and queue up to touch our feet. His costume is now on and he picks up a mirror, preparing to summon the deity. For three months of the year, we are gods, he says. Then in March, when the season ends, we pack away our costumes. And after that, at least in my case, it's back to jail. Thank you. When we were doing the tour of the um, uh, with, with these guys, the um, 
people that kept getting into trouble was the poor fakirs from Pakistan. We didn't know when we set off on this uh, roadshow that uh, of the six of them, five of them would share their names with leading al-Qaeda operatives, which made it virtually impossible to take them anywhere outside Pakistan. And uh, uh, when we were on the Asia Society last week, uh, one of them was still stuck in immigration. He'd arrived at one o'clock. He'd been taken to the, you know, will you step aside, sir, room for... Uh, uh, for five hours, and we, um, the Asian Society actually literally had to get Richard Holbrook to ring up and uh, get him out, uh, and when he arrived just before the end of the show on Saturday. The Sufis, I think, are the great uh, underrated force in South Asian Islam. People in this country are vaguely aware of Rumi and sort of mystical poetry and sort of cite it somewhere between Persia and Turkey. But the reality, and certainly my travels in, 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 in rural Islam in the Middle East, but particularly in South Asia, is that the Sufi shrines are almost as important as the mosques for ordinary people in, in, in the ordinary villages of the Islamic world. Um, the popular Islam of the sheikh and the village, and the village uh, shrine, where women come and tie a, a little lace around a, a lattice, asking for a, a job for their husband or child or marriage for daughter or something, uh, is the warp and woof of Islam in, in the villages. And in South Asia, it's heavily influenced by uh, Hindu mysticism. The two have sort of come together um, to a remarkable extent. The two uh, mysticisms are, are, are interchangeable. Um, and uh, the Sufi saints have always preached that uh, all religions are one, and just different manifestations of the same divine reality. What's important is not the ritual of the temple or the mosque, but to understand that divinity can best be reached through the gateway of the human heart, that we all have paradise within us if we know where to look. Um, this, of course, has put, for centuries, has put the Sufis at odds with the mullahs. And in traditional South Asian poetry, in the Urdu ghazals and so on, the mullah, is a figure of contempt for the mystic poet. He's a legalistic Puritan, a uh, hypocrite. And in the poetry of Ghalib and Mir and Dag and the great Urdu poets, the mullah is a, uh, is a figure of fun. Today, of course, uh, the mullahs have been empowered, partly by the amount of um, money poured by the CIA and the uh, Saudi intelligence and the ISI into radicalizing Islam against the Soviets after 1979 the Frankenstein monster that, of course, turned back to haunt us all. Um, and uh, the Sufism of the frontier province is certainly under severe threat these days. When I was a young <coughs> journalist in the 1980s covering the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan, I used to go and visit a wonderful shrine called the Shrine of Rahman Baba at the bottom of the Khyber Pass. And some of the most gorgeous evenings I've ever spent in South Asia have been spent... Uh, sitting under the palm trees, watching exiled Afghan musicians with their rabab singing the songs of Rahman Baba, the great nightingale of Peshawar, as he was called, the great poet of the Pashtuns. Well, last March, a party of Pakistan Taliban turned up at that shrine and they put dynamite in the squinches and brought the whole shrine down, saying it was a, a major gathering place for women and therefore uh, not to be tolerated and permitted. And there is a major war, which is part of a long ongoing war that has lasted 1,400 years in many places between the Orthodox and the mystics. Um, Sindh seems to have resisted the, in, in, in great part the uh, uh, radicalization which has gone on elsewhere. 
and the Sufi shrines are still very important in Sindh. And the, the biggest of them all is the, the, the shrine of Shah Abdul Latif of Bitshah. Shah Abdul Latif was an Orthodox Muslim who had a love affair that went wrong and brokenhearted, he went off with a bunch of Hindu Nat yogis. And his Rizalo, which is the great masterpiece of Sindhi literature, is heavily interwoven with Hindu imagery. And then there's the famous Sur Ramkali, when he actually talks about the, uh, the, the sadhus who um, uh, he traveled with. Yogis are many, but I love these wandering sadhus. Smeared with dust, they eat little, never saving a grain in their begging bowls. No food have they, thirst they pour and drink. These ascetics have conquered their desires. In the wilderness they found the destination for which they searched so long on the path of truth. They found it lay within. Hearing the call before the birth of Islam, they severed all ties and became one with their guru. Now, sitting by the side of the road, I look for them. Remembering these sannyasis, tears well up. They were so very kind to me. They radiated brightness. Yogis are many, but it is these wandering sadhus that I love, says Latif. Well, the um, uh, Rizalo of Shabd Latif has been sung outside his tomb every day in complete form by four relays of, of these fakirs of Bitshah uh, ever since his death in 1725, and not a single day has been missed. Um, and uh, when I went to see them, um, I was taken by one of the devotees uh, out to meet her peer in the desert. And um, uh, he was a wonderful uh, old man called Sain Fakir. And I was taken by his cella, who was the Red Fairy, uh, Lal Perry, who was this enormous great woman, a huge fat woman with a club. Uh, and she'd been driven out of uh, Bihar um, by, uh, uh, in Hindu-Muslim riots in the 1960s. Um, her parents had been killed. She was a, a, a Muslim in a Hindu village. Fled to Bangladesh, where again she was thrown out because she was an Urdu speaker at the time of Bangladesh, independent when only Bengali speakers were allowed. And she was taken in in Multan. Her family disintegrated there. And she ended up in the shrine in Bitshah. And what's lovely, I think, about the Sufi shrines, as equally the cremation grounds where the tantrics hang out, is that they form a major social function. In the West, if you fall through the cracks of society, you end outside on a sleeping bag outside Walmart begging from people, uh, or maybe sedated, or maybe in a straitjacket. Uh, in India, you go and sit in a cremation ground and everyone uh, treats you as a kind of semi-divine being. You sit there with your things. It's not a bad solution to a universal problem. Um, anyway, Sain Fakir and Lal Peri and her club. Sain Fakir, this is the last one. I've slightly run out of time, so this will be the last reading. After this, we'll have some questions. Sain Fakir was a venerable, frail, hawk-eyed old sage in his 80s with liver spots under his eyes and fabulously gnarled hands. He sat down cross-legged on a mat and before long was talking of his veneration of the two great saints of the region. I am the disciple of Lal Shabazz Kalanda, he said, and I am the student of Shah Abdul Latif. In Sindh, we don't really differentiate between the two. The two are inseparable, like Allah and the Holy Prophet. 
Saying this, he launched into a verse of the Rosalos, singing with a surprisingly strong and melodic voice for a man of such age. As he completed each verse, Lal Perry cried out, Huck, truth, or Gia Latif, victory to Latif. When it was finished, he smiled and lay back and accepted a palm that Lal Perry had rolled for him. My ancestors were all followers of Lal Shabazz, he said, but it is the poetry of Latif that always sets my heart aflame. We believe that his verses are more than poetry. They are the essence of the spirit of the Quran. The Quran is not always easy to understand, and as a result, we Muslims fail to take the real message of the Prophet. Only the Sufis teach the true path, the path of love. What about the mullahs, I said. The mullahs distort the Prophet's message for their own purposes, said Sain Fakir. Men so blind as them cannot see the shining sun. Their creed is extremely hard. It doesn't understand human weakness. It excludes everyone, said Lal Perry, even other mullahs at other times. Sain Fakir shrugged his shoulders. In this world, everyone commits sin. The Sufis have always understood this. They understand human weakness. They offer forgiveness. And people love those who forgive. So you're not worried when you hear that the Taliban have been blowing up Sufi shrines elsewhere in Pakistan? Latif had a saying, said Sain Fakir in an answer. Deal only with things that are good. If you trade in coal, you will be covered in black soot. But if you trade in musk, you will smell of perfume. So you don't think what happens in Raman Baba Shrine could happen here? No, he said firmly. They'll never be able to destroy the shrines of Sindh. The Sindhis have always kept their values. They will never allow it. Lal Shabazz Kalanda will protect us, said Lal Peri, and we will protect him. So what would you say to the mullahs and Wahhabis who say that what happens in Sufi shrines is not Islamic, I asked. Those Wahhabis are traders who sell their faith for profit, said Lal Peri, angry. They are not true Muslims, just fuel for the fire of hell. A lot of it, said Sain Fakir more gently, is about power. The Sufis are a threat to the mullahs because we command the love, the loyalty and the faith of the ordinary people. No one is excluded. You can be an outcast, a fallen woman, and you can come and pray at the shrine and the Sufi will forgive you and embrace you. You don't, have even to be a, you don't even have to be a Muslim and you'll be welcome, said Lalpari. What difference does it make if you call Allah by his Hindu names, Bhagwan or Ishwa? They're just words from different languages. The mullahs are always trying to fight the jihad with their swords, said Sain Fakir, without realizing that the real jihad is within. Fighting yourself, achieving victory over your desires, and the hell that evil can create within the human heart. Fighting with swords is a low kind of jihad. Fighting yourself is the greater jihad. As Latif says, don't kill infidels, kill your own ego. Jia Latif, said Lal Perry. We talked all morning about the Sufism of sin and Sain Fakir's belief that it would never succumb to the Wahhabis. One of Sain Fakir's sons brought green tea and we sat in the shade beside a bubbling rill of spring water as the desert sun beat down, sipping tea and tearing great flaps of newly cooked naan. Every so often, father and son would burst into song, illustrating some theological point with a verse or two of the Rizalu. You must understand, said Sain Fakir, putting his hand on his heart. Everything is within.
everything. That is what we believe and so few understand, both heaven and paradise. It is all within you. There is a story about Lal Shabazz Kalanda, which Sain Saab once taught me, said Lal Perry. One day, Lal Shabazz was wandering in the desert with his friend, Sheikh Bahauddin Zakaria. It was winter and evening time, so they began to build a fire to keep warm. They found some wood, but then they realized they had no fire. So Bahauddin suggested that Lal Shabazz turn himself into a falcon and go and get fire from hell. Off he flew. But an hour later, he came back empty-handed. There is no fire in hell, he reported. Everyone who goes there brings their own fire and their own pain from this world. Thank you. Hello. Uh, thank you for being here. I read your book, uh, The Last Mughal, and it was very interesting to see the description of the Qawalis and the Mughal Knights. My question is uh, related to the uh, earlier part where you mentioned about uh, in spite of the gods, and I guess I would consider Gandhi a modern god in a sense. How do you see the country dealing with that, and what is your feeling about ordinary people adapting religion, also a nuclear family system that is now breaking apart? people from one part living in Bangalore and people from Bangalore living in another part of the country, where you know, and weddings are probably the only incidents that unite them anymore for anything. And I'm not sure what my question is, but how do you see this No, well, this is what the whole book is really dealing with. This is absolutely the, um, uh, the focus of the book. Uh, and the answer is there's no simple one uh, answer solution. It varies very strongly around the country and how things are changing. I mean, I think the, the thing which India hasn't worked out, really, is that um, the 8.5% growth rate is there, but it is still a very unequal form of development compared, for example, to China. In China, um, you have lots of people making basic manufacturing. In India, huge amounts of money is coming from a small elite of, of, of super techies, and, uh, uh, and so if you have a car being made... Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the 200 people making all the doors and the chassis in China. Uh, in India, there's one guy that's making the chip in the middle, which is sort of beautifully programmed, but it's only employing one person, however much he gets paid. And it's a more unequal form of development. Um, and India, despite all its wealth, has now more people going to bed hungry than does have sub-Saharan Africa. And the result of that is, is the Naxalite uprising and all the other forms of, uh, of, of uh, uh, rebellion against the state that one sees. I mean, large areas of India are in rebellion against the central government. The Naxal rebellion has engulfed the whole of uh, Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Irissa, Andhra. It's a very serious problem. Um, and that's the result of the inequalities. That said, I'm hugely optimistic. I mean, I think India is, is, is uh, showing amazing uh, uh, transformation that I couldn't even imagine when I first arrived 25 years ago. And, uh, and it's leaping forward, but it's leaping forward in a uh, uh, two steps forward and one step back manner slightly at the moment. Um, where India and Pakistan differ, Pakistan is also leaping forward in all sorts of ways. I mean, think Pakistan's a lot more developed than many people realize. The roads are better than in India in many places, much better infrastructure in some ways. Where India has leapt ahead of Pakistan is in education. There's no functioning education system and government education system in Pakistan at all. 
as a result, more and more being educated in madrasas, and as a result, you're having the, the, the militancy ramped up and fewer and fewer people equipped to resist it. Quick follow-up question on the India-Pakistan. Being an Indian, you know, I have no real perception of what ordinary Pakistanis think about India. What is your experience being? My experience is that ordinary Pakistanis are much more positive about India than Indians are about Pakistan. And the reason is that uh, in Pakistan, they've got lousy uh, film industry and crappy television. Uh, and they all sit there fantasizing about, um, uh, about Bollywood film stars. And occasionally, there's quite a lot of girls in India that fantasize about Pakistani past bowlers, but it's not quite the same. Um, it's not quite the same. And uh, uh, the two countries are still very similar. It's much, it's much, much less of a culture shock to go from Delhi to Lahore than it is from going from Delhi to Chennai. Uh, Delhi and Lahore are still sister cities, and, uh, and the differences are far less. I mean, I, sooner or later, um, you've got to have a thing like uh, France and Germany, where after three wars, and you know, the Franco-Prussian War, First World War, Second World War, suddenly they're now the close buddies and, and close allies. And maybe the, maybe the rise of China. China's surrounding India very fast, building naval bases in and, and Sri Lanka and so on, uh, and maybe the rise of China will, if China eventually takes over Afghanistan, which is an interesting idea, certainly the Afghans are, are thinking that that's going to be the next thing, because the Americans are finished, there's no question. I've just come back from there, and there's one year left for Karzai Max, I'd say. Uh, and it'll be replaced by tribal chaos that the Chinese may be sucked into, if, if there's rebellion in the Kashgar or something, and then that might be an interesting redealing of the pack. We have another question to your left in the middle, up here. Hello, my name's Sonia Bieland, and I've been writing about some of the um, issues with India and yoga and its current uh, trend toward trying to preserve its yogic history. And I was wondering how you think India is going to be affected by, uh, by it leveraging this spiritual tourism um, to try and bring in tourists with the popularity of yoga? Well, the first thing should be said that somewhere in the audience today is one of the great experts on yoga and tantric sex in this audience, uh, David White. Stand up if you're here. <laughs> um, so he's the man to ask your question to. Uh, but um, uh, I think um, India has a huge amount of work to do on tourism. I mean, thank God, in a sense, that it hasn't succeeded in doing as well touristically as it should do. There are still more tourists that go each year to miserable Singapore. Uh, than go to uh, glorious, uh, um, uh, glorious India each year. And uh, a fraction of the tourists that could go there go there because they're put off by ideas of Delhi Belly and, uh, and being ripped off and all this. Uh, and I think um, yoga tourism and spiritual tourism are lovely, obviously, niche bits. Um, but uh, uh, I, think, uh, I think there's a whole... Um, revolution that must happen. At the moment, there's, there's some very good high-end tourism centered on Kerala and Rajasthan, but the nine-tenths of the country is completely unvisited. You can wander through Bengal, through Madhya Pradesh, through Karnataka for days on end without seeing another foreign tourist, even major sites. So it's a very strange situation in many ways. Another question to your right over here. 
Hi, thank you for a great book that uh, I would really love to read now, um, based on the stories you told it us. Available this is available outside at a very reasonable <laughs> price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't aware. I lived in Delhi for a year, so I yeah. can really identify with a lot that you said. I'd hate for you to buy the cheap Delhi edition. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm going there in two weeks, so yeah, I'll read it before then. Um, thank you. But this question is specifically um, related to one of the stories you mentioned, where in Kerala, these the Dalits, they become the gods for these two, three months. Um, how is it then? What explanation did you get that the Dalits are being accepted as these gods, the, the vessels, rather than Brahmins? It's a very interesting question, and there are PhDs that sort of look at this. The, I think the short answer is it's a kind of it's a, a safety valve. Uh, Kerala has one of the most oppressive caste systems of any state in India, along with Rajasthan uh, and Bihar, perhaps. And um, Two or three generations ago, if a Dalit touched a, a Naya or a Brahmin in, in uh, Nambudri in, in Kerala, he could, be, he could be legally struck down there and then. Um, it's not at all like that anymore, and, and, and things are changing, but it's still very harsh, and, and Dalits do not expect to be allowed into certain tea shops or their children into certain schools or they're uh, admitted into certain temples. And uh, this seems to be a social safety valve that has evolved rather like carnival in medieval Europe, whereby the kind of social structure is inverted for a period of time. And the, and the Brahmins bow down and worship it. But it is an extraordinary thing. Uh, and the other explanation, of course, is just that it's a, it's a survival from a pre-Hindu, pre-Aryan form of religion, a tribal religion, which got absorbed into in the capacious embrace of Hinduism. Question up here in the front, all the way to your left. Hi, uh, thank you, especially for the reading of that last passage. It was really wonderful. Um, I'm wondering, um, are we seeing the slow delusion of the mysticism and the tradition by returning um, Western-educated Indians that are coming back and, and kind of, of, of Diluting that kind of mystery and that old sense of I think idea. actually Sufism is quite strong in India. I mean, I've been visiting the shrine in the Zamudin, which is my kind of local big Sufi shrine in Delhi for 25 years, and far bigger crowds on Thursday nights now than there were um, uh, 20 years ago. It used to be a small thing, You'd be a couple of people gathering to watch Kualis. Now you have huge crowds surging every Thursday. Uh, where it's under threat is in the Middle East and in, um, uh, and in Pakistan. Uh, and it's strong in areas like Sindh. It's, it's dying in areas like um, uh, the, the frontier. Uh, what's, I mean, one of the things that's happened is that uh, a lot of the, uh, across the Middle East and across South Asia, people, the poor, would go and work in the Gulf on construction sites, and they'd come back rich. One of the ways of showing their status was to sort of adopt the garb of Wahhabis. Their, their wives would come back veiled. Uh, and they'd be the rich guys in the village, and they would come back with what was perceived as a superior form of Islam. But when Wahhabis first captured Mecca in the 18th century and destroyed the tombs of the companions of the Prophet, they were regarded as kafir across the Islamic world in the Ottoman Empire and in, in the Mughal Empire. Uh, they, were, uh, they were regarded as out-and-out um, infidels. They, I mean, the equivalent in the Christian world is that imagine if oil was found underneath the, some particularly vile Serbian Orthodox warlord. Uh, and, uh, and Christianity of a particularly virulent nature were to spread 
uh, or maybe in the, the wee frieze of the Outer Hebrides or something, some tickly puritanical variety of Christianity. And, that's, and that from being a fringed sect, that fringe sect suddenly found itself as the most powerful force in the Christian world, able to take over and buy up publishing houses and newspapers and, uh, and influence. That's the, that's the kind of change that's taken place. Any more questions right up here? Um, thank you for your talk. It was really lovely. I'm wondering if you can offer some quick observations, because it's a big question, about the ways in which religion, um, like Sikhism or Jainism or Buddhism, um, those religions are being transformed in modern-day India. Well, I, ha I haven't um, dealt with the Sikhs in this book. Um, and so I'm not really in any position to I'm, uh, offer more than casual observations about the Sikhs. The Jains I can answer, though, because I have done a lot of work on them in this project. Um, the Jains, once a very powerful force, and looking at the fifth, fourth, fifth century AD, dominant um, states in the Deccan and, and so on. Now a tiny minority, very rich, uh, largely in Karnataka and Rajasthan and have been roughly what they have been for, for two or three centuries. There isn't much change between now and, say, 1800, I think, in the position of the Jains. Uh, what there is, though, has been a great revival of monasticism among the Jains, and, and you've had a lot of professional Jains uh, at the end of their career as diamond merchants or, uh, or uh, moneylenders or, or businessmen of various sorts taking up monasticism. Uh, there's a fantastic account of this in Suketu Mehta's book, um, Maximum City, where there's this wonderful scene of this businessman going off and with his family and sort of dissolving the family, and the whole family go off and become Jain monks never to meet again. Uh, and uh, when I was in Srivanabella Gola, I interviewed one of the, um, uh, the principal Jain abbots of the, of the Mutt, who said that they now find a huge number of, and they're always super professional, highly educated graduates who are becoming monks, not the kind of poor, poor Jains in the villages of Rajasthan. Uh, Buddhism, um, again, I can't really ask because it's, it's, it's more of a, I mean, the Buddhism in um, India is there's a, obviously a slither in Ladakh and Spiti, but mainly it's an exiled Tibetan thing. At the moment, the things with the Tibetans are not looking so good in India because the, uh, the, um, they're caught in the middle of Indo-Pak, Indo-Chinese Indo maneuvers. And um, the Chinese are, are, are tightening the screws on, uh, on the Dalai Lama, and, uh, and India is showing signs of, of uh, giving in a little bit to the... Uh, India has behaved with remarkable... <coughs> ethical bravery, I think, supporting the Dalai Lama since the 1950s at a great cost to its own relations with China. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a remarkably, it's a, it's a, it's a very honorable plank of Indian foreign policy. But uh, there is signs that it's slightly changing at the moment. Uh, I wondered if you could comment about one of the stories in your book about the Jane Monk and um, if she's still, still around or... Uh, this is a story about this, which I was planning to read, but I just ran out. I got overexcited by the other ones and ran out of time. Um, the Jain Nun is, is the, this extraordinary institution of Salekana, which is such a uh, difficult thing for non-Jains to understand. 
the Jains are very like the Buddhists in all sorts of ways. They come from the same world. The Ganges Basin in the early centuries BC. Uh, uh, they uh, uh, the same way that the Buddha reacted against what he saw as the materialism and sensuality of that world. So Mahavira did as well, but he Mahavira's uh, stipulations were far more severe on the on the person of the ascetic. While they walk very gently on the world, wiping the road with peacock fans ahead of them, covering their face with masks to avoid inhaling or treading on ants or any small insects, they act with extraordinary brutality to themselves. Buddhist monks shave their heads, Jain nuns or monks pluck their hair out in a deliberately painful ritual. Uh, they, Buddhist monks can beg for food and money. Jain monks are forbidden from touching money, and they can only have food given to them. They're not allowed to ask for it. The most they can do is to indicate hunger by putting their hand over their shoulder. Um, and the highest form of Jain asceticism, which all monks are meant to aspire to, is to embrace salikana, which means basically starving yourself to death. And Jains are very clear that this is not a form of suicide in their view. This is merely the ultimate... Um, uh, uh, w w wishing away of attachments. First you give away your family, then you give away your possessions, and then you give away your body. And Prasanna uh, uh, Matamataji, who's the nun I inter uh, interviewed, had the most poignant story about how she thought she'd given up all attachments, because she'd given up her family, and she'd given up her clothes, and she'd given up her fancy things, and walked off for 20 years with another nun called Priyogamati. Then Priyogamati embraced Salakana and starved herself to death because she got TB and was dying. And uh, Prasanna Mataji found that she was desolate. She'd lost her friend. And she said, I had only one last attachment, but that opened up suffering for me. Uh, and she's in a state of sort of loss and, and mourning. Thank you so Whether much. she's still alive, I don't know. I mean, most of the people in this book I've kept up with, and, and many were friends before and since, um, and I've, I've known for, for, for years. Or The uh, Prasada Matamataji I met for only 72 hours, the shortest meeting in the course of the whole research, and I've never seen again since. She doesn't have a mobile phone, it's difficult, or an email address, <laughs> much other than sort of hanging around Shravana Belagola waiting for her to come back. I mean, uh, but she'd just begun Salakana 18 months ago when I interviewed her, and she must now be in the, uh, towards the final stages of it. Yes, let's go. <laughs> Thank you.